As you may have heard uh, in the past couple of weeks, or maybe if you're a guest this morning, you heard this morning uh, that we have uh, elected and nominated and voted upon a new elder in the church, and that is Dan Schumacher. And so we did that last week, and uh, he was unanimously voted in as our next elder. And so that's a, a very significant thing in the life of our church. And uh, uh, so here in just a quick minute, I'm going to ask Dan and Barb uh, to c- come on up here and have a seat. We're going to have a quick installation st- ceremony for them. And uh, in a minute, I'm also going to ask our deacons, our current serving deacons, to come up and lay their hands on them, and we're going to pray for them. Uh, but by way of just a quick summary, we've been talking here, uh, in particular on the leadership level at, at Grace, about deacons and about elders and about uh, striving to have um, as close to a biblical pr- perspective and uh, on church leadership. And so we've been talking about elders, elders, deacons, what are the difference? What are elders? How are they different from pastors? How do we have pastor elder shepherds here? And we've started about two years ago talking about that on the leadership level. And about a year and a half ago, we started to pursue um, a few potential elder candidates and we now have our new elder in place. And so it's been a long time coming uh, for me and probably Dan and Barb, especially as these conversations have been ongoing for quite some time, and finally the day has arrived. And so, uh, Dan and Barb, why don't you guys come on up and uh, have a seat here? And uh, as they're coming, I invite the uh, our current deacons, those of you guys who are deacons, if you're here this morning, come on up as well. And we're going to gather around them, and we're going to pray for them. So as you're uh, doing that, just a, a few notes. Uh, in the New Testament, um, when people are appointed to special tasks or special positions, uh, a common thing in the New Testament was uh, the public laying on of hands and prayer to signify the beginning of their ministry. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. Uh, there are several uh, New Testament examples. Uh, in Acts chapter uh, 6, I believe it was, maybe the forerunners to the deacons uh, had this done to them. Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey in Acts 13 were laid hands on them and were prayed for. And then Timothy, who we have a couple books to in the New Testament, when he was appointed uh, for his special ministry, the elders laid their hands on him and prayed for them. And so we simply want to do that this morning by, as, uh, as a way to commission and affirm and love and send them on to uh, ministry. And Dan, you can testify, we had a leadership meeting uh, this week and we had our first kind of joint elder session. And so even before you were installed, you were to work, <laughs> right? You were working hard. We didn't get home until about 9.30. So... Um, so we're really happy to have you guys uh, here. So what I want to do is simply this. Dan, I'm going to read over you and uh, uh, Barb as well a passage uh, from 2 Timothy chapter 4. And this is Paul's uh, kind of commission, kind of charge to the younger Timothy as uh, he kind of uh, is writing his farewell letter and really wants uh, young Timothy to finish his ministry well. And so te- uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4, uh, verses 1 through 5 say this. And so I'm going to read this over you as a charge as I find it. In the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead, and in in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, encourage, and with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will uh, not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Discharge all of the duties of your ministry. And so that is a charge to you, Dan, and to you, Barb. And so we're going to lay hands on you and uh, both of you guys, and we're going to pray. I'm going to ask Jay to lead us, and uh, then we'll be done. So, 
Father, we just thank you for uh, this fun installation service. And Lord, I just really pray that, that you would be with Dan and Barb as you have been. Lord, I pray that their lives would show you wherever they go. They're not just an elder in this church, uh, but wherever they go, Lord, they have to live the life uh, that you've called them to live. And I just really pray that it would be very evident to people as they even walk around wherever they're at. Lord, I just thank you for their uh, witness, and I, I thank you for their opportunity and their willingness to serve. All right, as they are heading back to their seats, I'd invite you to grab your Bibles and turn with me. Uh, we're going to be in two or three places this morning, but we're going to start out in the book of Ezekiel. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to the book of Ezekiel is where we're going to get started this morning. Ezekiel chapter 14. Uh, if you didn't bring your Bible, uh, that's certainly okay. We do have uh, pew Bibles that look something like this in front of you, so feel free to grab one of those, and that's on page 684. Uh, also, uh, if that's not available, the text should be on the screen as well. And so we will turn in our Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 14 is where we're going to get started uh, this morning. It's been a good morning. Glad to see everyone here, and uh, we're really grateful for what God is doing in our midst here. And so as you're flipping, I'd invite you to, um, to do this with me. Let's pray one more time and ask God to bless uh, the reading and the preaching of his word. Father, thank you so much again for a wonderful morning. Thanks that we can lift our hearts and our voices um, to you. Father, I pray that our worship would have been an overflow of a life of worship, that as we go from this place uh, to eat lunch and to do our activities and throughout the week, that our lives would be living sacrifices of worship unto you, that all that we are would worship you with our hearts, with our minds, with our, all of our strengths, with all of our hands, with all that we are, that it would be in worship, uh, glory to you and great joy and satisfaction for us. Spirit, we ask that you would be among us. Spirit, I ask that you would come and allow this sermon to come not just in word only, but in power and in deep conviction, uh, that you would speak uh, directly to our hearts and to our minds, and that you would find us willing and soft-hearted and not hard-hearted towards your word. Help us to begin to apply these things in our lives so that we would become progressively like the image of Christ, our great God and our great Savior, who lived in, uh, in our place the perfect life, who died in our death the only acceptable death, and who, resurre- who, who is resurrected from the dead to overcome Satan and sin and rebellion and uh, death itself. And so we're so grateful for him. Jesus, be among us. Be well pleased by what you hear and by what we do. We ask it in your name. Amen. We are in part three of our summer series called The Idol Factory. And so if you're new with us, um, you haven't missed too much. We're in part three of The Idol Factory. Uh, And so I want to do this. I want to give you just a real brief synopsis for uh, where we've been in part one and part two of The Idol Factory. Um, As you can see, we have our very own Idol Factory uh, here in the back. And here next week, I've been getting questions. Here next week, it's going to start producing. And there will be boxes and there will be idols uh, that we'll talk about this summer. And so that's... That's on the way in the coming weeks. In, 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 by way of summary, 
In part one of the Idol Factory, we talked about how idolatry is essentially worship gone wrong. Uh, The main points were simply this, that we are all worshiping something at some point in time. And according to uh, the first and second commandment, we are either worshiping God or we are worshiping idols. And so idolatry is simply a worship gone wrong. It's worship given to something or someone else. And then in part two of the Idol Factory, defining idolatry, we basically tried to wrap our hands and our brains around the concept of idolatry. What does the Bible holistically have to say about idolatry? And essentially, uh, if I could summarize it this way, uh, the Bible essentially says that idolatry is looking uh, <clears throat> for something that only God can give us from anyone or anyone, anything else. Uh, we saw that we love the biblical image of loving our idols. That is, we desire and want something more than God. We trust in our idols, which is the idea that they act as our functional savior. We seek other people and things to deliver us from our situations. And then the final image is that we obey our idols. That is, God is our sovereign king, but when we seek and, and bow down to and, and submit to anyone else's will, we are then involved in idolatry. And so this morning, the Idol Factory Part 3, identifying idols. My main goal this morning is to help us begin to, now that we have a a bigger understanding that anything can be an idol, it's not just a totem pole which we bow down to, that anything can be an idol in our life. How do we then begin to identify idols, potential idols in our life? I want to begin with a quote, and it should be up on the screen. Oz Guinness and John Seal in their book, No God But God, says, uh, say, they say this, idolatry is the most discussed problem in the Bible and one of the most powerful spiritual and intellectual concepts in the believer's arsenal. Yet for Christians today, it is one of the least meaningful notions and is surrounded with ironies. Perhaps this is why many evangelicals are ignorant of the idols in their lives. And the question that I want to ask myself and ask you this morning is, are you ignorant of the idols that are in your life? Uh, Three parts this morning. So if if you are a structured kind of person and want to know where we're going, I simply hope to ask three questions, and so you can jot these three questions down, and then answer these three questions. The first question is this. What is the source of idolatry? What is the source of our idolatry? That is, where is idolatry ultimately rooted? Number two, how does idolatry capture us? That is, how do we get sucked in to idolatry? And then finally, number three, how do we begin to identify our idols? How can we begin to tell what some potential idols are in our life? And so that's where we're going to be going this morning, and we will get started with question number one. And question number one is simply this. What is the source of our idolatry? I think the Bible clearly affirms that the source of our idolatry is what I would call our fallen or our sin-inclined hearts. In fact, John Calvin does say that the heart is indeed a factory of idols, that our heart is a factory of idols. And I believe that the Bible affirms this, that our sin-inclined hearts produce the idols in our lives. Let's turn now to Ezekiel chapter 14, and uh, we're going to read verses 1 through 5. And what I want you to simply notice in this passage is the number of references to the heart and the number of times that uh, Ezekiel, uh, God speaking through Ezekiel, essentially identifies the Old Testament people of God that it was their heart 
that was producing these idols. And so uh, let's do this. But before we do that, I just want to give a quick background. In the, in the book of Ezekiel, essentially what's happening in chapter 14 is that several elders of the people that were kind of the leaders of Israel at that time come to Jeremiah while they're in exile. So they're not in the promised land. They're in exile. They're in Babylon. And some of the elders of God's people, the leaders of the time, come to Jeremiah. And while it's not stated Clearly, it's presumably they want to hear a word from God. They want to hear something from the prophet. And indeed, what they get is a word from God. They get a rebuke. They get a clear rebuke, and God begins to identify their hearts as the source of their idolatry. And he speaks through the prophet Ezekiel saying, I want to woo back my people's hearts. Their hearts have produced these idols, and they've gone astray from me. And I'm going to woo them back. So let's read this together in Ezekiel chapter 14. Some of the elders of Israel came to me and sat down in front of me. Then the word of the Lord came to me. And this is what uh, God said. Son of man, these men have set up idols in their hearts and put wicked stumbling blocks before their faces. Should I let them inquire of me at all? Uh, No. Therefore speak to them and tell them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. When any of the Israelites set up idols... In their hearts, and put a wicked stumbling block before their uh, faces, and then go to a prophet, like Ezekiel, I the Lord will answer them myself, in keeping with their great idolatry. Verse 5 I will do this, here's the purpose, I will do this to recapture the hearts of the people of Israel who have deserted me for their idols. And so simply this, what I want us to, uh, to see is that the source of idolatry in our lives is not external, it's internal. We set up idols in our hearts. Uh, jot these references down. If you want a few more references, mostly from, all from the Old Testament, identifying our hearts as the source of idolatry, jot these down. Ezekiel chapter 6, Ezekiel chapter 6, verses 8 and 9. Uh, again, Ezekiel chapter 20. Verse 16, 1 Samuel 7, 3, 1 Samuel 7, 3, Joshua 24, 23, and then Numbers 15, 39. If you didn't get that, you can come to me later. But all of these passages essentially affirm what we've seen is that our sin-inclined heart, the enemy, is not outside. The enemy, as it comes to idolatry and all sin, is inside to a large degree. I want to share with you a, a, an article that I, that I ran across in my preparations this week that I think really drives this point home, that as we begin to identify the idols in our lives, let's not think that they are just outside of us, that if we could just change our behavior, that it would be, be okay. It's a heart issue. It's an internal thing. Uh, I want to share this story. And this uh, short article is concerning the prosecution of one of the Holocaust's worst masterminds, one of the Holocaust's most infamous leaders. And his name was Adolf Eichmann. I think I'm pronouncing that right. Adolf Eichmann. In this story, uh, this article, I think, illustrates powerfully Uh, that the enemy is not from the outside, but it's primarily from the inside. I'll go ahead and read this article to you. In 1960, Israeli undercover agents orchestrated the daring kidnapping of one of the worst of the Holocaust's masterminds, Adolf Eichmann. After capturing him in his South American hideout, they transported him to Israel to stand trial. There, uh, prosecutors called a string of former concentration camp prisoners as witnesses. 
One was a small, a small man, small stature, by the name of Yehiel Denur, hopefully that's right, who had made a miraculous escape in Auschwitz. On his day to testify, Genur entered the courtroom and stared at the man in the bulletproof glass booth. The man who had murdered his friends, personally executed a number of Jews, and presided, presided over the slaughter of millions more. As the eyes of the two men met, victim and murderous tyrant, the courtroom fell silent filled with the tension of the confrontation. But no one was prepared for what happened next. Genur began to shout and to sob, and he collapsed to the floor. Was he overwhelmed by hatred, by the horrifying memories, by the evil incarnate that was Eichmann's face? No. As he later explained in a riveting 60 Minutes interview, which I tried to find, by the way, and I couldn't find it, it was because Eichmann was not the demonic personification of, of evil that Genur had expected. Rather, he was an ordinary man, just like anyone else. And in that one instance, Genur came to a stunning realization that sin and evil are the human condition. I was afraid about myself, Genur said. Quote, I saw that I am capable to do this. Exactly like he. Denure's remarkable statements called Mike Wallace to turn to the camera and to ask the audience the most painful of all questions. How was it possible for a man to act like Eichmann did? Was he a monster, a mad man, or perhaps, perhaps something even more terrifying? Was he normal? Denure's shocking conclusion Quote, Eichmann is in all of us. And I think that's the Bible's testimony about sin, depravity, and the source of idolatry. Eichmann is indeed in all of us. And John Calvin is right. Our idols, our hearts, are idol factories. And so the source of idolatry is inside of us. Secondly, the second question is not only what is the source of idolatry, but how does idolatry go about in a very practical, real way in our everyday lives? How does idolatry capture us? That is, how does it woo woo us in? Why do we fall into it? Um, And my answer is simply the same answer that I would give um, to the notion of sin. We fall into idolatry just for the same reasons and the same method and the same process that we fall into any sin, and this is what I would suggest. First of all, sin and particular an idol that we may have, it promises superior satisfaction. Listen to what I'm saying. It promises to make us happy. It promises to give us fulfillment. It promises to make us our life worth living. And so the promise is held out by the idol. Secondly, we give in to that idol, we worship that idol, we love that idol, we sacrifice for that idol, we trust in that idol, and we obey that idol, and ultimately that promise of satisfaction goes unmet. It does not deliver on its promises. There are numerous, uh, in particular, passages in the Psalms that talk about how idols don't satisfy. They never deliver. They cannot save. They don't give us what we want. And then finally, 
that promise going unmet boomerangs back to us to disappointment, disillusionment, dissatisfaction. And if you've ever been there, I've been there. I was not a Christian until I was 16, and I can think back before my Christ days, and I can identify the idols of my heart. You know why? Because that's what happened. I was looking for satisfaction in being high academically, in being good in sports, in you know being a uh, ladies' man, or whatever, whatever it is. And I can think about that, and, uh, and I tried that, and even when I got it, I was still hungry. I was still spiritually hungry. That's the way idols work. Here's a quick quote. I think it's on the screen. John Piper describes it this way in relationship to sin. He says this, Sin, and I would say by extension idolatry, sin is trying to quench our unquenchable soul thirst anywhere but in God. That's what sin, I think, is, at least in a practical way. And so... I want us to turn now to the book of Jeremiah. So flip backwards in your Bibles with me uh, to Jeremiah chapter 2. And what we're going to see is that uh, John Piper sounds very much like God himself in Jeremiah chapter 2. In Jeremiah chapter 2, we're going to focus on verses 11 through 13. But in the context, all of chapter 2, God is essentially talking to a rebellious nation. And he's saying, early on when I I, I brought you out of Egypt... Man, you were faithful to me. I've been nothing but good to you as a people, is what he says in the preceding verses. And then he says, but you have left me. You have, you have forsaken your God for gods who have done nothing for you. And then, in verse 11 through 13, he says this, and it sounds very much like John Piper. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 11. <clears throat> Has a nation ever changed its gods? Parentheses, yet they are not gods at all. But my people, Israel, have exchanged their glorious God for worthless idols. Verse 12, be appalled at this, you heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. Essentially, he says, hey, look across the river. He says that in verse 2, literally. He says, look across over there. Look at the pagan peoples. Look at the gods they worship. Have they ever, have the pagans ever given up the worship of a God that has been so good to them? And the implied answer is, no, they haven't. The pagans don't forsake their God when their God is faithful. But my people, verse 11, have. They've forsaken their God who has been nothing but faithful. Verses 11 and 12. And then the kicker is in verse 13. Verse 13, my people have committed two sins. And he's going to list them. Number one, they have forsaken me. Notice, they have forsaken me. Notice the imagery. The spring of living water. The spring of living water. And, number two, they forsook God and they have dug their own. <laughs> They've dug their own cisterns. They have, they have broken cisterns that cannot hold any water. Here's the image that God is saying. He's saying, this is what I'm like. I'm like a fresh spring with fresh water. And in our culture, when we get fresh water out of the tap, you know, that's not like a big deal to get a fresh, clean cup of water. But in that culture and in those days, if you found a fresh, clean, cool, reliable source of water, you had it made. I mean, that was huge. Why would you ever forsake that? Why would you ever forsake that in a physical way? 
And God says, well, that's how I am spiritually. That's what I'm like. I'm reliable. I always quench your spiritual thirst. I'm clean. I'm pure. I'm satisfying. If you're spiritually thirsty, come to me. That's how I am. I always meet your needs. But he says, even though that's the case, you forsake me. And look what it is that you forsake me for. Notice what he says. You forsake me, living water, clean water, and you've dug for yourself broken cisterns, which were basically things carved into rocks. Sometimes they put plaster on top of it to help with leaking, and it would catch rainwater, and that was a decent source of water if you didn't have fresh water, but it certainly was not preferable to a clean water source. And he says, that's what you've done in the spiritual sense. You've made for yourself cisterns, and they're stale water. It's brackish. It it tastes bad. It doesn't satisfy. That's not really what you were made for. It it doesn't meet your needs. And not only that, I'm reliable. Oftentimes in that culture, these cisterns would break and they would get leaks. Not only is it bad water, but it's not even reliable. It's not reliable. And God said, that's what you've done in a spiritual sense. That's what you've done. I always meet your needs, your thirsts, and your spiritual demands. As Piper says, your unquenchable soul thirst. And idols, idols never do. Idols never do. And so in answer to the second question, how does idolatry capture us? Uh, That's the answer. It promises satisfaction that only God can give. We take the bait. We are dissatisfied. But we don't know where else to go, especially if we're an unbeliever in Christ. We just go to that idol and that idol and that idol and they do not deliver and we are left with stale, brackish, unreliable spiritual water. That's what happens when we get into idolatry. Now I've made this illustration for you and I thought about passing these out but it might get me in trouble so I'm not going to. Um, uh, But uh, my pastor back in college, um, he had a saying and it's always stuck in my mind. My saying, the saying that he would say is always this. He said, sin is always like eating chocolate-covered Alpo. So take a look at this real closely. I'll hold one. This is chocolate-covered. And uh, I, I was making it, you know, last night, and I had some on my fingers, and I was like, should I lick this? Should I not? No. There's dog food in there, but the chocolate on the outside, folks, is sweet. Oh, it's sweet. It tastes good. I was making it. I was stirring in my dog food, and I was like, this smells pretty good. <laughs> I was like, i got to find a dog to feed this to. But I thought, no, dogs can't eat chocolate. That's a bad idea. Um, sin is like chocolate-covered Alpo. On the outside, at first taste, there's something that appeals to our fallen nature. There's something that, to our fallen taste buds, that say, this is good. This is good. But then, I'm not going to crack it open because I don't. Uh, you, then you get to the inside, and boy, it's not satisfying. It doesn't taste good. It doesn't meet your spiritual appetite. And he said, sin is like, anybody want this, by the way? I didn't think so. Sin is like, no junior high boy. He's like, I'll eat it. Um, <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Been a youth minister long enough. Uh, sin is like chocolate-covered alpo. But on the contrary, on the contrary, to follow the illustration, God is like a malt bowl. Anybody like malt balls? Okay, here we go. <laughs> Pass them around. I don't know how many I have. So hey, guys in the back, this should encourage you to move forward. There we go. Tough luck. That's how it happens. Sin is like malt balls. On the outside, it tastes very good. There's something to our new rebirthed nature in Christ that says, man, that's chocolate. That's really good. And we get down to the core of it, and it's even better. 
It's even better. That is what idolatry is like. It's like chocolate-covered alpos. Alpo. At first it tastes good, but it does not meet our spiritual needs. So in the remaining minutes that we have, I want to venture into question number three. We've seen the source of idolatry is our fallen hearts. We've seen that idolatry captures us by its false promises. The third question and the final question this morning is how do we begin to identify idols? How do we begin to identify idols? If our hearts really are idol factory producing things and if we can so easily be seduced by the chocolate that's on the outside of the Alpo, then how do we begin to identify this chocolate Alpo in our life? Um... I have a list of questions, and so as you came in, hopefully everyone got a piece of paper. I don't have one. Did you get a piece of paper? Shake your heads if you got one. Wonderful. Uh, There should be some pins in the pews in front of you. Pull out a pin. This is going to be interactive here, and so no more listening. You get to think uh, actively a little bit. If you want to do this, I'd really encourage you to do this. I'm going to go quickly through these questions. I'm going to give you just a, a few brief seconds. Just write down your initial reaction off the top. unedited, uncut. Don't look at what your wife is writing down. Don't look at what your kid is writing down. Just answer for yourself between you and God. And then I encourage you later today or in the week, really seriously go through and try to answer these questions. These questions are from really a couple sources. Uh, The first source is a guy by the name of uh, where are they? Uh, David Paulison. David Paulison. And then the other, uh, other set is from Jared Wilson. So these are questions that I've pulled from other guys who write on idolatry. I just want to go through these and just answer them. These, if you answer these, it doesn't mean that it is your idol, but what it may mean is that it could be your idol. Does that make sense? So it doesn't mean it is, but it, mean it, could, it means it could be. So here we go. Question number one. Actually, no, a couple, a couple scriptures. I'm just going to read these. But there is biblical precedent for us to begin to uncover the idolatry in our life. Do we have the text on the screen? I think we do. 1 John 5, 2. Uh, the very last line in the epistle of 1 John. This is how we know that we love... Oops, that's not it. Sorry. Maybe I gave you the wrong, maybe I gave you the wrong text. Okay. Mine says, Dear children, keep yourself from idols. Maybe that's 1 John 5 3. My apologies. It's the very last verse in the epistle of John. And then secondly, let's get that off. <laughs> My fault. 1 Corinthians 10 14. Is that one right? Yeah, good. 1 Corinthians 10 14. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. So the point is, there is precedent for us to avoid idolatry. Okay. Question number one. We're going to fly here. Question number one. Are we ready? Okay. Question number one. I hear a stirring. I'm like, are they going to throw something at me? I don't know. Okay. Question number one. What are the very best blessings in your life? This is a toughie. What are the very best blessings in your life? I had a conversation with a lady in our church who happens to live very close to me, and uh, she was sharing with me the other day. She said, man, my husband and I were talking about idols, and I came to realize that... Sometimes idolatry can be sin. It can be something that God says is wrong. But she said, you know what I'm coming to realize? Idols are often the very good things in life, the very best things in life. And I'm like, why don't you come preach for me? I was like, that's exactly right. So number one, what are the very best blessings in your life? Tim Keller says this, and then I'll give you a quick minute to respond. We think that idols are bad things, but that is almost never the case. The greater the good, pay attention to this, the greater the good, the more likely we are to expect that it can satisfy our deepest needs and hopes. Anything can serve as a counterfeit God, especially the very best things in life. And so, go. Take a quick second or two.
Number two. Number two, what do you complain or get angry about most often? What do you complain about or get angry about most often? This is what I've discovered as of late. Our anger and our complaint are often symptoms that our idols are being threatened. They're often symptoms that our idols are being threatened because we don't complain about things we don't care about and we don't get angry about things that we don't care about. Before I give you, well, here's a second. Take your time and then I'll share my personal story with this one. Okay, personal story time. Uh, so this came very clear in uh, my life this weekend. Shelly and I, our dishwasher broke down, and we discovered it would be a large sum of money to fix it. And so we thought, we're going to spend uh, you know, a few extra bucks, and uh, we're going to get a brand new one. We didn't like the one we had anyways. It didn't dry the dishes. So weird. I was like, aren't they supposed to dry them? Anyways, we lived in this misery. Misery. <laughs> For two years. So we get a new one, right? And... Uh, and Shelly is like, you know, we don't want to, let's just not spend the money. We can take it out ourselves. We can put it in ourselves. It's not that hard. And I was like, yeah, okay, we can do this. Uh, so call your dad, right? He's handy. So he, we, long story short, we call her dad. He helps us get it undone. Not after a little kind of con- conflict, you know, I was frustrated. She was frustrated. I'm a little upset. I can't, you know, I, don't, I can't handle a tool. I'm like, what's a wrench? I don't know. You know, uh, <laughs> And Shelly's like, this is what it is, honey. <laughs> and so there was, there was some frustration. There was some anger uh, that uh, arose on my part uh, over this issue of putting, uh, taking the dishwasher out. And then yesterday we uh, tried to put it in. And that, I think we started about 8 and we called Doug about 11. And I'm like, Doug, I've done all that I can do. Will you please come? And he comes over in like 10 minutes. He's like, see ya. I'm like, yeah, thanks. <laughs> He's done, you know. And uh, thank you, Doug. Appreciate that. Um, and so throughout the process, I found myself being frustrated and angry. Um, and I began to think about idols in my life and a couple realizations. Number one, I got angry and I got frustrated. Number one, because it was taking so much time. And I'm coming to realize that that can be an idol in my life in the sense that I think that if I get to use my time, my time, as I want to do the things I want, that will make me happy and give me satisfaction. Therefore, when I spend four or five hours in a weekend on a silly dishwasher, my idol is threatened. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? My idol is threatened, and I get angry. Uh, secondly, I discovered that I have many idols, but the second idol uh, was the idea of fear of failure, essentially. Fear of failure or love of success, whichever you want. I'm the kind of guy who doesn't do something if I don't think I will do it really well. And that's because I think in my heart of hearts, I'm afraid to fail. I'm afraid for people to look at me and say, you are incompetent. You don't know what a wrench is. You don't know what screw head to use. And that terrifies me because my idol of being successful is threatened. So what about you? Number three, what do I comfort myself with? What do I comfort myself with? What are my release valves? That is, when we're upset, when we're hurt, how do we comfort ourselves? These can be what I talked about last week. These can be our functional saviors. These can be our functional saviors. We run to them to save us from our distress. So you have a fight with your wife. Where do you go to comfort yourself and to gather your thoughts? Is it to alcohol? Is it to the TV? Is it back to work? Whatever that may be, it may be functioning like a savior. You may be looking to it to save you from that when God should save you from that. 
I'll give you a few seconds. Okay, number four. Number four. What do you worry about? Or what causes you the most stress? Those of you who are like me, who might have inclinations of worry, this one can be insightful. Because these may indicate what we love more than God. The things that we worry about, the things that cause us stress, oftentimes are things that we love. We don't worry about our kids when they're off on a trip uh, to an unhealthy degree, um, unless we care about them, but they may be our idols, (laughs) and we may fear losing them. So what is it that you worry about when it causes you stress? Don't answer for your spouse, please. Number five, whose approval, this is a hard one for me, whose approval must you have? From whom do you most fear rejection? Because these may be the idols that we obey. We don't submit to God's will, we submit to their will, caring more about their approval than we do God's approval. So, Who was it, if you had that relationship broken and they thought less of you, you would be utterly devastated? I think the the baby's crying because these questions are hard, right? She's like, oh, stop. (laughs) Number six, what... These, and they get harder, by the way. Number six, what if lost, what if lost would make your life not worth living? This may indicate that there is a very good thing in your life that is elevated to the status of God. Hard one. John Fawcett, in his book, Christ Precious, says this regarding this question. When the loss, is it up there? It's okay if it's not. When the loss of any temporal enjoyment, when the loss of any temporal enjoyment casts, casts us into excessive despondency and dejection, it is evident that what we have lost was the object of our inordinate love. Final question, and we'll wrap up. What prayer, if unanswered, what prayer, if unanswered, would make you seriously think about turning from God? What has caused you to be most angry with God in the past? It's a tough one. It may indicate... Go ahead. This may indicate that your real God, that your, that your idol, excuse me, it may indicate that, your, that God is not your God, but that your, what you're angry about, whatever it is that you answered there, whatever it is that you may be angry that he hasn't answered, the real God has failed to serve your false God. The real God has failed to serve your idol, and you don't like it. That's what happens there, and we can identify our idols. So wrapping up, Wrapping up this morning, 
we have gone uh, and we have answered the question, hopefully, um, three questions. What's the source of our, our idolatry? It's from within. It's our hearts. How does it capture us? It promises satisfaction and it leaves us with Alpo. Number three, how do we identify our idols? All of these questions, hopefully, will help us do what the scripture says to keep ourselves from idols. And so in closing, I want to go back to this image, this powerful image in Jeremiah. God described himself as the spring of living water. The spring of living water, abundant and satisfying. And I want to ask you, just focus right here, and we're almost done. Um, I want to ask you a real important question. Have you experienced God in this way? Have you experienced God as your spring, your spiritual spring of living water that satisfies the deepest depths and longings that you have? This, this image of the spring of water points us ahead to the person of Christ. Because a couple times in the book of John, we see Christ describing himself, what he offers to us in similar ways. John 4.13, Jesus calls himself a spring of water. Does that sound familiar? A spring of water that is welling up to eternal life. In John 7.38, he calls himself a, a stream of living water that will flow from within himself. Later, we see that that's the Holy Spirit that comes to live and give us life when we trust in Christ. And so here's what I want to leave you with this morning. Do you know God through the person of Jesus Christ? Have you experienced this God that is satisfying, that is abundant, that meets all of our spiritual needs? Have you experienced him because you have come to know his son, who is also the spring of living water, who meets our spiritual needs by faith? Have you come to the place where you recognized that you were not perfect, that God is, that his wrath and anger is real and you can't avert it on your own, but that Jesus Christ is God's gift to us. He came and lived a life perfect. I'm not perfect. You're not perfect. He came and died a death that, in which he bore all of the wrath and anger of God, which, by the way, we deserve. And he rose from the dead to vindicate that and to offer us eternal life a spring of living water, real spiritual satisfaction. Oh, friends, <laughs> have you experienced that? Have you experienced that? If you haven't, I beg that you would come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Place your faith and trust in him alone. Ask him to forgive your sins and he will become to you a spring of a living water. Let's pray.